0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at HopkinsBiotechPodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain. Our guest today is Ben Portney. He's an associate at Flagship Pioneering, a venture capital firm dedicated to building and growing companies that transform healthcare. Flagship is different from traditional venture capital firms in that it, quote, pioneers life science companies from their earliest conceptual stages, which actually means that a lot of their portfolio companies are founded and wholly owned by Flagship until they're formally unveiled and become available to outside investors. To date, Flagship has launched more than 100 scientific ventures, worth over $30 billion in aggregate value. During his PhD at UMB, Ben briefly worked for the NSF-sponsored i program as an entrepreneurial lead, co-founded a biotech company, co-founded and led a student group called Entrepreneurship and Innovation Network, worked as a research analyst intern at a long, short hedge fund called Actinium Capital, and served as an equity research extern for T. Rowe Price. Towards the end of his PhD, Ben worked as a Venture Labs Fellow at Flagship Pioneering, after which he was brought on as an associate. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me. So before we get into your background, could you briefly introduce us to what you are currently working on at Flagship?
1: Um, sure. I thought you gave a, a really nice intro to what Flagship does um, in the overall podcast intro. But I'm an associate at Flagship Pioneering. Um, Flagship is just what you said; it's a venture capital firm, but not your traditional venture capital firm. In that, the three of us um, would be founders of a company, go up to a venture capital firm, and say, "Hey, um, give us $10 million, and we'll give you X percent of equity." in our company. That's how traditional venture capital works. Flagship, on the other hand, founds the company. We are the sole founders of each of our companies. And so by founding these companies in-house, we have full creative control over the direction uh, of the company. And because the companies are well-capitalized as well, we're able to control the direction of the company um, and go after really white space ideas and technologies that traditional venture capital uh, might be wary of. So, in my role as an associate, I'm an entrepreneur scientist, so to speak, where I help in multiple parts of the flagship process. Uh, I help to explore those early white space ideas to come up with what concepts are worthy of being a company. And that exploration phase can take anywhere from, you know, two months to, to six months, where essentially we build a company on paper. Um, and then I help, once we come up with a worthy idea of pursuing, help lead what we call the protocol stage, which is starting a company. It's given a number like FLXX. Um, we don't like to name the companies because we get to attach to them. Um, but uh, once we create that protocol company, that's where we start hiring in scientists um, doing those early proof of concept uh, studies that help answer those what if questions we introduced uh, in the exploration phase. And that's where we start to lay our initial strategy and IP strategy and file our initial um, patents uh, around the technology or, or area of biology. So, um, so far in my experience as an associate, I've uh, been part of many explorations and some protocol phase companies all the way into Growth Co. And so growth Co additionally is around the time where uh, the company goes into a Series A financing, which again is fully uh, financed by Flagship Pioneering. Um, and so uh, I've, I've taken parts, uh, part in all aspects of, of the sort of uh, model that Flagship uh, goes by. Um, there are a few other parts that I haven't taken part in, which is after that protocol phase, you go into NuCo, which raises Series A, Uh, But then you go into series B financing and beyond where you bring in full executive team, et cetera. Uh, And I haven't had that experience yet, but that's the role of an associate at Flagship.
0: Awesome. So the work you do at Flagship now requires both deep scientific expertise as well as entrepreneurial expertise. I'm sure along the way, both of these two things. Um, You developed them over time through hands-on experience. So my question to you is, what was your first taste of entrepreneurship and how did you come to acquaint yourself with the business community as a PhD student?
1: The very first time uh, I had an idea um, for a company, I I think, or an entrepreneurial idea in grad school was when I was doing um, a lot of in vivo experiments and having to kill a lot of mice uh, through cervical dislocations, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are really familiar with that process, if not enjoyable, or at least it wasn't to me. And so I was having this conversation with a a lab mate of mine um, and telling him how much it bothered me. And so we started brainstorming, what are creative solutions to this? Could you create a device that performed that cervical dislocation for you? And so we got really excited about this and started writing, designing it on paper, contacted an engineer, and that's how I ended up in the NSF I-Corps program initially, which is a program designed to help train young, early uh, entrepreneurs who are in grad school. And so uh, that was a really great process. Ultimately, we learned that it wasn't such a good idea. Um, uh, There wasn't the need there that we thought there was. Um, and we actually were known as like the mice guys, uh, for a while afterwards, <laughs> around town. but what was really great about that is it gave me a taste for, you know, what, what I core teaches and I was trained in that process. And it also introduced me to a lot of really great mentors who have, who lasted the rest of my PhD, but also into my professional career after a PhD.
2: I'm just curious. How did you find out about I-Corps? Is it something where, you know, they reached out to you or you found them? Could you talk a little bit about the program?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I found them, essentially. We had this idea, uh, a lab mate of mine named Alex Meltzer um, had this idea. And then we started going around talking to people. Um, uh, There was one entrepreneurship class at University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore. So we contacted that professor, had a meeting with that professor. They introduced us to someone else. They introduced us to someone else. And we kind of got, um, got to know lots of people in the University of Maryland system, both at College Park and Baltimore, um, who were willing to talk to us and help us. And one of those uh, one of those mentors suggested we enter into the I-Corps program
0: and, and helped us get in. That's really interesting. So you sort of saw that there was a need somewhere and you thought, how could, how could we actually go and do this? And so that involved networking and ultimately finding I-Corps. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I I remember uh, the mentor who is a good person for any, you know, Baltimore grad student to know because he still um, starts a lot of companies in Baltimore. His name is Ken Malone and he is the founder and operator of Early Charm Ventures. But he looked at us and he was like, this is a stupid
0: idea, but I'm going to help you because uh, I think it's, I I like you guys. Ben, you talked about, uh, you start founded this biotech startup and, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurship that actually goes on within Flagship Um, and just listening to the story and actually the one that that Jenna just uh, mentioned, you know, it makes me wonder, do you think that at some level there has to be some sort of... uh, some naivete involved, where you think, "Why, why do we do things the way that we do things? Can we do things a completely better way?" Do you think that that element is sort of required in the process, almost, of entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I think you can call it naivete. You can call it uh, risk taking, um, willingness to be wrong. But um, a lot of questions we ask at Flagship are "what if" questions, and a lot of answers we get. Um, when we look into areas of biology, start with it turns out. So um, we are always going into new areas of biology and new applications of biology. So the answers aren't always out there and you have to be willing to go after them and make mistakes and be comfortable being uncomfortable um, while going after those answers.
0: So you co-founded this biotech startup um, in graduate school that, Focused on regenerative medicine, could you sort of talk us through that experience? What it was like for you to start that, and what was it like to actually bring the founding team together and sort of figure out, let's make a company together?
1: Yeah, so um, I worked again with the same uh, people that I met going through that iCor experience, right? So um, I was really, really lucky to have a lab mate doing his PhD in the same lab as me. Who was a really great scientist named named Alex Meltzer? Who went through the I Corps experience, and again we were having a conversation. Like we just learned how to isolate uh, mesenchymal stem cells from different tissues, and we came upon one really interesting tissue that's readily available, easily accessible, and yielded lots of mesenchymal stem cells. And we figured, you know, we use it for lab experiments, but these could have potential therapeutic benefit. How could we create a company? That one helped preserve these stem cells for patients who had different tissues removed, and then two use that you know banking concept to then create therapies um, with those stem cells because that's what we were interested in. And so I worked with the same uh, same lab partner again when we had the idea. Went immediately to talk to Ken Malone about it. So he he um, was really happy and said this is a better idea than your last one. <laughs> um, and then we were really lucky as well to be working with some amazing ENT surgeons in, in the University of Maryland system. So one in particular, uh, Dr. Rodney Taylor, um, liked the idea, um, you know, thought it, thought it had potential and signed up to, to go through the process of creating a company with us.
0: So how far did that venture go? Did you, you raise funding? Did you uh, Not very far.
1: Pitch, yeah. <laughs> um no, so we never got around to raising legitimate funding. So we we created the company, we entered, we applied to a lot of grants um, and entered a pitching competition. So I would say probably the highlight of that company um, happened um, I think my last year in PhD or second to last year of my PhD, where um, we pitched in the what's called the crab trap pitch competition um, that occurs at um, Medimmune or AstraZeneca in Gaithersburg uh, as part of like the, um, the biohealth capital region, you know, year, annual meetings. So we were pitching with like very legitimate um, startup companies. Some One was a Hopkins company that won recently raised a lot of money, actually, um, in a series A or B. But um, that was probably like the highlight of, of that particular uh, endeavor, but it taught us a lot um, and, and helped propel me into finding flagship and wanting to um, join as an associate.
2: Yeah, Just to backtrack a little bit, can what made you decide to, you know, sort of get into science and PhD and at what point did you sort of know that maybe you weren't going to stay in a
1: traditional academic path? Did, did you know or did you sort of? find it along the way. Um so I didn't um I didn't have like a very traditional way of getting into science. I started undergrad not knowing what I wanted to do. I I reasoned that I wanted to be a dentist for <laughs> some reason and um started taking biology classes because of it. And I was pretty uh pretty myopic, I had like tunnel vision uh, mm. during my undergrad years just getting through the the pre-med, pre-dental course load until I had this cell biology class, my senior year of college. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, this is cool. I haven't had to study for any of this and I've done very well on like the tests. Um, I really like it. I think it's really interesting. If I had more time, I would look into this or take another class, but I didn't cause I was like caught in, you know, the, the rat race of, uh, of applying to, to graduate school. Um, so um, if you then fast forward a few months, I realized that I, I should do some research in order to help my application um, to get into grad, into dental school, um, and joined a lab in Baltimore. Uh, and then just completely fell in love with, with science around that time. And that was in large part, thanks to um, who be, the person who became my, my PI, my, my PhD mentor, um, Carl Altman. So um, just really fell in love with it after that. And it started to snowball. Um, why I got into entrepreneurship um, while I was in my Ph.D. Um, was, again, um, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do after um, I started a Ph.D. program. I just knew I liked science and I felt that becoming a professor wasn't really uh, the role for me. It's just a gut feeling. But what I did quickly realize is I liked solving problems and coming up with creative solutions to things. And a big reason I got into research to begin with was to help find drugs and create drugs um, to help patients. And I soon realized probably the best way to do that was to um, follow how other drugs got to market. That's through a commercialization process. Do the discovery at a university, file the patents, it's licensed out, or a startup is created. And I realized if I actually wanted to create a drug that goes into a person, I probably had to follow that model. And so I tried to immerse myself in it as much as possible. I think what's really fascinating is that, just like the process of getting a drug to market, you have to learn this commercialization process, an early stage startup process. Similarly, to understand how drugs actually go and get to patients and those companies make money and persist, you have to understand what happens after the early stage, what happens when a company gets a little bit bigger, and then finally when a company goes public. Um, and so it's a whole different you know, area, but one that um, you that is good to understand, um, even if you want to do early stage uh, entrepreneurship.
0: So in addition to getting involved in uh, lots of activities, you actually create an activity both for yourself and for uh, the UMB community. You co-founded the Entrepreneurship and Innovation Network at UMB. Could you briefly describe what that is and how it got started?
1: We started that um, that group because at the time a lot of our friends uh, at UMB were creating new organizations surrounding um, the idea of alternative careers beyond a career in academia. So, really similar to what you guys are doing, you know, with with this podcast, which is awesome. Um, a group started about revolving around consulting. A group a more general group just started revolving around like how to get a a scientist job in industry. Um, All of these groups were popping up. And since our friends were creating them um, we, it was suggested to us that we create one related to entrepreneurship. And that was really easy because at the time um, we had, we had just met all of these great mentors and we were, and they were happy to mentor lots of students. And so um, we basically built a curricula of workshops, around all the problems that I had run into when trying to start uh, an early stage company as a student, essentially. Um, And so each class was built on one of those topics, and a mentor from our networker, a connection from a mentor would step in and and lead that workshop.
0: So one of the things that I think is so interesting about this program is it started as one thing, and it's now evolved into something much bigger and completely different, right? It started as a sort of a student group, um, but it's now evolved into a UMB-sponsored co-working and incubator space. How did this evolution take place?
1: Well, I think uh, the Entrepreneurship and Innovation Network, the group, the club that we created, still does exist. And there's students at UMB still operating that club. And what's cool about that club is that it has students from not just PhD track, but pharmacists and med students and dental students and law students and social work students. Um, so really diverse group of students. Um, but I think we just reached critical mass and interest that it caught the ear of um, the administration and um, realized that they needed to implement more programming, more space for students who wanted to pursue these entrepreneurial activities. So it was really organic. um, And we can't take all the credit ourselves. I think a lot of the wheels were in motion already, um, but maybe we tipped it over the edge.
0: So one of the things I saw is you were selected by the University of Maryland um, for this uh, President's Entrepreneurship Fellowship Program. Does that have something to do with how the group evolved?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The purpose of of that fellowship was to write a white paper report about the status of entrepreneurship at the University of Maryland. And we found that more was needed to satisfy the needs of all the students at University of Maryland. So we designed a survey, sent a survey out, analyzed the data and realized that more programming and spaces were needed for entrepreneurship uh, for all of the UMB students. And so we wrote this report and presented it to the administration, which sort of catalyzed and accelerated Um, the development of a a co-working space.
2: What was the process like, you know, actually getting to advise a university on, you know, graduate education and the future of it?
1: It was really fun. It it felt personal to me because many of these um, things I was proposing were, were needs that I felt acutely as a student trying to, or interested in entrepreneurship. So, it's really cool that now we do have that programming and similarly at Hopkins, I know you guys have had more and more programming oriented that way. And now you have fast forward, which is, which is really exciting. Um, But that all didn't fully exist um, five years ago, 10 years ago. So uh, I think a lot of that is driven by innovation, but also the desire for students like you guys. And like I was one, I was a grad student to, to want to take part in that innovation process as well.
2: After your PhD, you pretty much immediately went into flagship as you know um, their venture labs fellow. So can you talk about what the program is, what the application process was like, and then I understand it's a summer long program, so just what the experience overall involved?
1: Sure. so I, I a bit went through you know the process. Of uh, and phases to the flagship model, starting with explorations, going into that protoco, that seed stage company, um, move, then moving on to co and then ultimately at Growth co which is your Modernas and Rubiuses and Indigos of the world. Um, what you do uh, as a fellow at Flagship um, is solely focused on the exploration process. So the Flagship Fellowship is a three month program, paid uh, fellowship program that brings in approximately 20 to 25 um, PhD grad students or MD grad students for the most part um, from around the world, frankly, um, mostly in the US um, to uh, take part in the ideation and exploration phase uh, of the flagship model. And so it's a three month program broken into one month chunks where you'll rotate amongst the flagship origination teams. And you'll be tasked with a topic. That topic can be given to you as a single word. It can be, you know, molecular mimicry, or it could be, you know, something much more specific, like ProTax or something like that. Uh, probably not ProTax because they exist, but something like that. Um, and then you you have a month with a partner to chase that idea down and come up with as many company hypotheses, what we call venture hypotheses, as you can. And over the course of that month working with associates and the partnership, um, you kind of hone those venture hypotheses until you get down to your favorite ones. And then you start contacting key opinion leaders uh, around the world uh, to pressure test your venture hypotheses. So you have this finished product at the end of the month that you present to the leadership and say, Hey, here's our topic. Here's what we found. Here's what we're proposing. And a lot of those explorations ultimately do become companies uh, that are moving on to the protocol stage within Flagship. So as a fellow, you uh, have like a really intense, exciting three months of um, ideation. And it's a, it's a cool experience because it kind of retrains your brain about how to think about, scientists, uh, about science. We're trained as scientists to go from very like linear progression of logic. But what we want to ask in, at Flagship is what if questions. So you're saying, if this were possible, what wouldn't it enable? Um, so you go down that route. And, or if there's gaps in saying, we don't know if this is possible, let's prove that it's possible through orthogonal experiments that have been validated in the literature. Uh, um, going down routes like that. So it's, it's often a bit of growing pains at first in the fellowship, but a really fun three-month experience.
0: That's, so that's a really... Interesting perspective. Something that you mentioned in there is that the scienti- the way that maybe academic science is done is you're studying some sort of biological phenomena or you're working on some sort of technology and you later on, if you want to commercialize it, you figure out how to fit it into the market. Whereas um, this sort of um, ideation model at Flagship is actually more of like, what if we could solve this problem? What if there's a need there that we can address and then working, looking back and saying, does the technology exist for us to address those problems and how can we build a, maybe an interesting company around that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. In in many ways. Yes. I mean, I I think generally explorations and flagship companies can be biology oriented where it's like, we're understanding a whole new area of biology. So the microbiome is the perfect example of that. Uh, If you look at the number the top inventors, like the number of um, IP publications and ventureship um, in the microbiome space. Um, it's not a professor from uh, an academic institution. It's not someone at a pharmaceutical company. It's one of the partners at Flagship holds the most uh, inventorship in the microbiome space. So we can really diligence and innovate in a new area of biology. So microbiome being one example. But then there's also examples of technology-oriented companies, like Arubius is a good example of that. What if we could take red blood cells and, and outfit them to deliver drugs therapeutically or cure diseases um, that otherwise can't be cured? And so I think we've, those are two areas that uh, explorations often focus on.
0: So I'm curious to know more about the Company creation model that flagship has because I think it's really interesting flagship has a really systematic evolutionary methodology to company creation that starts with um, What's called a what they refer to as I guess seemingly unreasonable idea That could have a big impact um, And then it undergoes a variety of scientific and operational stress tests like you were saying before um, figuring out maybe what's the best idea to run with and maturing that into a proto-company and then a company. Um, so actually, in a way, it sounds like a lot of that process is like, a bit like the scientific method for hypothesis testing. Um, so my question is, once you have an idea, um, an idea is nominated, um, how does the process for a stress testing idea play out in practice?
1: One way we do that before we've officially started the company um, is to throw all the ideas against the wall and see what sticks. And the way we do that is we talk to a lot of key opinion leaders in the field, so mostly academic scientists uh, with expertise in that area. And we can, in some ways, run the idea by them or ask interesting questions that inform our perspective. Uh, Sometimes they say it's crazy, and sometimes that's a good sign. Um, Or sometimes they say, that makes sense. Uh, I never thought about it that way. Those are always good indications um, that it's a good idea for a company. Um, The other way we generally approach this, um, and this is a more formulaic way, is saying what needs to be true in order for this venture hypothesis um, to be legitimate, to move on to that protocol phase? And you systematically go through the answers to those questions as best as you can to um, sort of de risk or um, vet your venture hypothesis.
0: So that's interesting because actually, um, there's this one way that I've heard um, that is a good way of doing research is not only to uh, try and figure out the types of experiments or the types of data that you would need to be true in order for your hypothesis to be true but actually to do killer experiments Um, experiments where a certain outcome can't be possible you know in other words you try and kill your own hypothesis if those things um, turn out not to be true then maybe your hypothesis has a little bit more legs to stand on Uh, but this early i think exploration phase is um it's somewhat messy And I would imagine that it would require a bunch of moving parts. So my question to you is, what do you think are the necessary conditions for this evolutionary method of company creation in terms of the different types of expertise that you need or even the culture of how you talk about ideas?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, just alluding to what you said, those killer experiments are baked into every bit of our approach. Um, the faster you can kill an idea, uh, the better, because if you keep going and don't ask that killer question, you're gonna, you're eventually gonna have to face it. And the answer is not gonna be a happy one. And you might have investment in the company when, or or something like that when you could have answered that a lot sooner. So it's our goal always to ask those killer questions in the exploration phase and to design and implement those killer experiments. Uh, within the protocol phase that's the intention of the protocol phase so all of that is is integrated in into our model very much so
2: i think it's such an important message too i mean because i know it was kind of i was always raised with that idea sort of in grad school and you know in undergrad but i know not everyone else was and it's i know sometimes when you're thinking of experiments it can or if you have a company it can almost feel personal like oh my God, they want to like destroy my thing. They want to take down this idea. But no, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's so, if you can see the weaknesses in your own product, other people probably can too. And they're going to either exploit it faster than you or, you know, you're going to lose a company that way because they have a better model. So it's, it's just really good advice that you have to think no matter what stage, whether you're in grad school, whether you're, you know, an associate, like you have to start thinking in this sort of framework.
1: Yeah. I mean, those questions um, don't necessarily kill your idea, but they eliminate uh, pitfalls Mm -hmm. that you need to um, run down, right? So you can invent around that. That's totally possible. Um, But you need to know what the the potential pitfalls are and your mitigation strategy the sooner the better.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned is that Flagship manages different Companies in different stages of their maturity, um, so it looks like from the outside looking in that flagship is divided up into three component parts: right, flagship labs, which is involves a lot of the idea exploration; flagship pioneering enterprises, which works with a lot of the earlier stage companies, and then flagship pioneering ecosystem, which works with more mature growth stage companies. Um, you briefly mentioned this before, but uh, which of those uh, three phases do you most closely work with? And what types of people do you think uh, typically work at each of those stages? So
1: I most closely work with the flagship labs companies um, and uh, the next phase of those, of those companies. So still flagship uh, fully owned companies, but a little bit further in their development less so and i don't work with um, the growth co-stage companies that are within our ecosystem um, and can still help us and help one another and we interface with them but i don't work on those companies um, as for what roles are available you know throughout any of those companies or what the phenotype of someone who works at those companies might be as a scientist it's completely open that you could uh, be an early stage, you know, molecular biologist or chemist or, or any discipline um, and work at any of those companies across our, our portfolio. Um, an earlier stage company, you might have more of an appetite for risk or faster pace or uh, changing priorities, um, that kind of uh, startup feel. Whereas if you were to work at a growth co, you, you would be much more um, regimented in, in probably what you're doing on the day to day. So it really depends on the person, but the type of scientist that you're trained to be as a as a Hopkins grad student or a University of Maryland grad student um, is applicable to any of those companies.
0: People working at different stages of the company might have different priorities. So for instance, someone working at the idea stage or the early stage is really focusing on validating the idea and the core business model, whereas someone at the later stages of the company might be thinking about scalability, uh, reaching the market, things like that, that would actually be valuable to the early stage people. And for instance, some of the things that are valuable to the early stage people might be also valuable to the growth stage people. So how much communication is there between the personnel that are working in those different levels?
1: I think uh, at least at the co and growth co stage, uh, a new co stage, um, there's constant communication between the whole team. Um, as an early stage startup, you, you have to do that. It's a requisite. Um, I I don't have as much experience or any experience in those growth co-stage companies, so I can't really comment to that. But in my opinion, uh, communication across the team is is essential. So that can be from the flagship side, so like an associate working on a protocol, um, but also the employees of that protocol directly. The communication has to be constant and transparent.
2: Our audience is PhD students and maybe early career scientists. Um, So what advice... Or experiences would you give to people looking to start getting into either biotech venture capital or you know equity research? I know you had mentioned some of your internship experiences. Um, yeah.
1: I would suggest uh, internship experiences, but more broadly, just try lots of things. Um, there, don't be hesitant uh, in trying things. Um, it's a really great time as a grad student to. Um, be allowed to screw up uh, or be allowed to try lots of things, and not like something. Uh, it's a great opportunity as a grad student to reach out to people that if you were a professional would never respond to you, but because you're a grad student, they're happy to help you and respond to you. Um, I So I would encourage all of that. Um, it's just as important to learn what you don't like as it is to learn what you do like and want to do. Um, and then I would also recommend and i commend you guys do stuff like what you're doing um you know learn as much as you can about uh, prospective careers um to begin with so it can better inform your decisions later on the other thing i would say is that so you go and take a scientist position in a company right after grad school or you go do a postdoc that doesn't define what you do for the rest of your career like you can go do other things after that too so i think as a grad student uh, when I was talking with my friends, it felt like this really existential question. Um, And I'm only two years, you know, out from my PhD, but my perspective has changed on that a little bit. There's, you know, you have your whole career ahead of you. You're allowed to try lots of things even after grad school.
0: That's interesting. Actually, in a lot of uh, career conversations, what are you going to do after your PhD? Um, A lot of people, I think... um, and even myself, I think I'm probably guilty of doing this to some extent, but think that um, you make one commitment and you're deciding that you're going to be, for instance, a scientist or a bench scientist for the rest of your life, or I'm going to do one thing for the rest of your life. But actually once you get into the workplace, it's really dynamic and you can sort of follow uh, what you're interested in. Is that what you're, you're trying to say? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. And yeah. you have,
1: you have, you know, more time in your career to explore than you've had in your PhD, which is, you know, five to six years, you have 30, 40 years after to really, uh, to sort out what you want to do.
0: Thank you so much, Ben, for sharing your perspectives on entrepreneurship and biotech venture capital with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. For updates about upcoming guests, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chickermane. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.